Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Fran Moore, Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy at UC Davis, and recently a Senior Economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors, or CEA. In today's episode, I'll ask Fran to describe what it was like working at CEA. We'll talk about the topics that came across her desks, how she carried out the work, and some of the aspects of the job that were particularly interesting, challenging, and rewarding. We'll also talk about how researchers working today can produce work that is as policy-relevant as possible, informing the government with the best available analysis on a wide range of issues. Stay with us. Okay, Fran Moore from UC Davis, welcome back to Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. It is wonderful to have you. And Fran, you were actually one of the first guests we had on the show. Uh, I remember back in the day we talked about agriculture and climate change. But we're going to talk about something really different today, which is um, what it's like to be an economist and an environmental economist at the Council of Economic Advisors. So we're sort of like going to pull back the curtain to some extent and um, get a sense of what it was like to, to do that job. But before we talk about that, we always ask our guests to describe how they got interested working on environmental topics. And, you know, you did that a couple of years ago when you were on the show, but it's been a while. So if you could just remind us how you became interested in these issues, I think that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think I came at this really kind of more from the natural sciences side. So I kind of um, started, I kind of, unlike many of your your guests, I think on the show, I, I didn't have a like big history as a, as a child and kind of outdoors, but I really kind of, came to it a bit more as a um, undergraduate when I was studying geology and earth science. And then that gradually morphed over my kind of postgraduate career into an interest in climate um, in particular. And then eventually, you know, kind of realizing, you know, economics is a really important, like, way of understanding our kind of current uh, environmental problems and particularly kind of policy solutions to them. And so I kind of um, gradually, uh, after I graduated, kind of drifted first into thinking not about um, ancient climates, which is what I what I'd done in, in undergrad, but thinking about modern climate change, um, human driven climate change. And that, you know, became an interest in policy. And then I kind of pick, really picked up economics um, as part of my PhD studies. Um, and then, you know, sort of kind of it gradually morphed into an environmental economist. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so as I mentioned, we're going to talk today about what it's like to be an environmental economist working at the White House Council of Economic Advisors, or CEA. We're going to use that acronym, CEA, today. Um, but before we talk about your job and the job, can you tell us a little about CEA as an institution? Uh, what's its purpose? What's um, How many people work there? Just tell us a little bit about CEA. Yeah, so CEA is a component of the Executive Office of the President, which is kind of like the larger like body that's kind of sometimes called like the White House. Um, and it is kind of its origins are kind of like the mid 20th century created by uh, created by Congress. 
um, to as an institution that's providing economic expertise to the the president's office. Um, and so it kind of sits alongside the other components um, of the executive office. So those are things like um, OSTP, the Office of Science Technology Policy, um, the Office of Management and Budget, which is really big, um, Council of Environmental Quality. And it is headed by the chair. And so over my, my year there, um, um, the original chair in the Biden administration was Cece uh, Rouse from Princeton. Um, and then she left and now Jared Bernstein has been what's confirmed by the Senate uh, last year. And the chair is kind of a member of the cabinet. And then there is uh, kind of supporting the chair and like also making up the council are two members. Um, and so together they, they form the council. Um, and then there's a, there's a staff then that is supporting the, the work of CEA. And that's, um, so below the, the council is kind of this, this rung of senior economists. And so that, that was my position. And I think there were maybe about 12 or so senior economists and each, uh, each one has a particular issue area. Um, and so, you know, there's like a kind of macro and finance and labor and trade international. And I was kind of in that role of climate, environment, kind of clean energy, um, issues. And then, um, and then below that, there's then a kind of um, set of junior economists and staff economists that are kind of people uh, either on leave from PhD programs or kind of people out from undergrad or maybe master's degrees that are kind of um, working in CEA to, you know, and so we kind of all work together to kind of like uh, provide economic expertise, objective economic advice on policy relevant issues that are coming up for the administration. That's great. And when you are doing that type of analysis and providing that um, input to the process, are you primarily providing it to you know the office of the president, as you, as you mentioned, or are you also sort of providing that analysis for the agencies or do the agencies kind of do their own thing? I mean, it really varies, but I mean, primarily this is input kind of primarily kind of for the chair, right, uh, of, of CEA and then kind of uh, like more broadly, like, you know, the the, the White House decision making. Um, but there, you know, depending on what processes you're involved in, there is kind of interaction with the agencies, particularly in the various like interagency working groups um, that you could be involved in. And so we were, um, we, we were kind of leading one of those around uh, climate change and macroeconomic modeling. Um, so there was a lot of work, particularly with EPA and DOE to try and like integrate climate risks into some of the macroeconomic modeling that CEA does. Great. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned earlier that there are, I think you said 12 senior economists who have different sort of areas of expertise, you playing the role as an environmental economist. So what does an environmental economist do in that position? Like what types of questions would come across your desk and what were your responsibilities in, in handling them? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because a, a lot of what CEA does, one of the, one of its kind of core functions 
is that a lot of the, the senior economists are involved in um, interpreting the economic data that is coming in regularly. So when there are things like GDP releases or jobs numbers or trade data, uh, CEA kind of uh, looks at those numbers and kind of provides like interpretation of them in the kind of economic context. The environmental economist kind of is not, like we don't have those regular data releases around environmental economics. So you kind of like that was a piece that, you know, I was really not not involved in. And instead, uh, there's a lot of what you're doing is for environmental economists, uh, like we have a particular role in kind of regulation um, and looking at the economic analysis of regulation, because it is quite important in environmental policy. And so that kind of kind of takes two forms. So one is like, you know, the administration, uh, you know, is putting out a lot of um, big uh, energy and climate regulations. And so taking a look at like some of the economic analysis in that supporting it. Um, and then also, um, you know, things like um, the there was a revision to Circular A4, which is the guidance from OMB to agencies on how to do cost benefit analysis. Um, and so that's kind of the again, because of, you know, the, the environment is a really particularly important issue area for regulation. It's not the only one, but it's one where there's been a lot of economic thinking around good cost benefit analysis um, of regulation that that, you know, that the kind of particular role maybe for the environmental economist in contributing to that process. And then something that all of uh, uh, CEA does, and it's, uh, uh, it's another core function that everyone is involved in is as part of the creation of CEA by Congress, there's a required report that's produced every year. And so this is called the Economic Report of the President. Um, and it's kind of come from the chair uh, and then it's like delivered by the, you know, kind of by the executive office to Congress. And it is a you know policy document that describes kind of the economic policy issues of the day, and you know provides economic um, analysis of them in but in ways that are kind of it's not an quite an academic review uh, document, uh, and it's not fully uh, kind of policy document, but it's kind of somewhere in between. Um, and so, you know, everyone's involved in kind of producing that. And so I was involved in um, creating, we had a, a chapter on climate change impacts in the US in the 2023 ERP. And that was something that uh, I was working on. Yeah, that makes sense. And as you were talking about the other economists who are sort of analyzing regular releases of data, it made me wish like, man, I, I you know, shouldn't we have those for environmental uh, indicators? Or maybe we do have them and they just come in daily or hourly or something like that. But were you ever jealous of your colleagues who had a sort of formal set of data releases that they could regularly interpret to actually get their hands uh, and heads around the scale of certain economic problems? Or did you feel like you had what you needed to do your analysis? I mean, it did make me think that, uh, you know, like, are, are there a set of indicators that it would make sense that we should kind of be releasing as a kind of, you know, just like taking the the temperature of, you know, our economic kind of effects on the environment or um, something about our environmental policy that we can be measuring on a kind of more regular standardized basis. Um, and I, you know, there I, you know, I was kind of joking around that maybe we should do kind of um, seasonally adjusted like temperature releases, GDP releases, um, you know, monitoring our climate. Um, or you could, you could imagine a number of others. And I do think 
advocates kind of interesting thinking about uh, what those would be and there's kind of ideas about what what that could be. Um, but yeah, it's just not something that is in the set of standard economic indicators that are kind of coming out regularly. Right. Yeah. And I was also thinking about the inclusion of, you know, like natural capital accounts, um, which we've actually done uh, podcasts on in, in previous years. Margaret Wallace did a great one with um, Eli uh, Finical from Yale. Yeah. And that, um, that was a really important process that, you know, Eli, you know, Eli definitely led and, you know, we were like, you know, strong supporters of. And it, it's certainly in that vein of kind of creating um, government statistics that can be produced regularly, um, relied on to give, um, you know, just good input into decision making around how we integrate, you know, the environment into our, you know, our, our economic management and our economic thinking. And I thought that's a like really important kind of um, process that the administration is, is undergoing kind of based on the, the guidance that like Eli really led um, as part of this uh, natural capital accounting work. Yeah, very cool. So um, back to sort of you in, in your position, um, you know, all of us, when we start new jobs, uh, we sort of realize that there are things we're really good at in the job right away. And we realize like, oh, I really need to improve this skill if I'm going to do my job well. So I'm curious, just from a personal perspective, what were some of the things uh, that you were really well suited to tackle right away? And what were some things that were hard at first that you really had to bone up on? Yeah, so I mean, I think in in terms of you know being able to like jump into the the work right away i mean i do come from you know i think it was a benefit me being primarily a kind of climate change economist and like this is an administration that is doing a lot of climate policy kind of the ira passed maybe uh, months before I kind of started. And so that it did kind of take everyone by surprise a little. Um, and it was like, oh boy, okay, I guess, you know, this is going to be an exciting year. And having, you know, some familiarity with that policy space and the academic work in, in kind of climate policy generally, I think was like really important for, um, you know, this position at this time. Um, I think you know, I think it helped a little bit that I've kind of worked with a lot of different disciplines and I've kind of used to um, both picking up kind of new ideas and new language and new mental models of how people think about things pretty quickly. And so that, that I think helps a lot. It helps a lot in kind of both you know, learning new new ideas in new issue areas, um, and also kind of communicating uh, with you know non-economists, like people in other components, on like you know some questions that maybe we're all working on. And so I think that that was like a kind of flexibility that was like quite helpful in this environment. Um, I think what was hard was as an academic, we are used to the luxury of time and kind of, you know, taking as long as it takes on a paper to make it really perfect. And um, also the feeling that you want to be the expert on this issue when you're kind of writing on it or publishing a paper and maybe not the only expert, but like one of really, you know, a few people that kind of understand this like the most uh you know in the country or in, even in the world and that is just like not conducive to like this environment where you're really you're, you're being asked to produce things on a timeline that you know it really matters like it, it you don't have time to you know 
like investigate it in, in as much detail as you would as an academic and you have to produce this like in the next week or in the next couple of days um and you just have to be kind of comfortable with um you know drawing on you know the fundamentals the essentials and then finding you know good information sources um and kind of pulling that together and knowing you know if i had more time or if like you know could talk to like other people um you know maybe this would be much better but it has to be kind of good enough for now because it it is needed now um and that that's something that it really takes uh, a bit of getting used to coming from academia yeah i'm sure and my next question actually is along similar lines, which is just asking you what the atmosphere was like, what, what the work environment was like. I mean, like many of us have seen The West Wing or like other TV shows about what it's like to work in the executive branch. Obviously, you weren't physically in The West Wing, but but I'm, I'm curious, like, what were things like? Was it fast paced? Was it frantic? Was it um, was it more like a typical office setting that you might see? Um, in like a regular office environment. Um, can you just describe it for us? I mean, I would describe it as, as fast paced, um, but not frantic. So um, there was definitely, um, you know, things just move and things need to happen, happen quickly. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, you know, this is an organized administration, <laughs> like there is, you know, it's a clear sense of kind of priority and timelines and kind of when things need to happen by. And there is, there is a kind of, you know, there's a push behind that is this kind of a level of, you know, work and rapidity that is, you know, diff certainly different than academia. Um, but it is not, you know, it's not overly rushed, I think, uh, at least from my perspective. Um, there would definitely, uh, you know, I also watched The West Wing and like one of the characteristics of that of the kind of having the meeting is you're walking along the corridor. And I do remember at least once kind of, you know, talking to um, one of us, our um, a junior economist, that you know, he he had something he had to say, and I was like, just come and walk with me while I like go go down the corridor to the next meeting. And I was like, oh wow, this is kind of like the West Wing, <laughs> you know. And I would say, from my perspective, and again, I think this like does vary depending on what issue areas you are working on, um, but it was a kind of you know in the evenings, um, you, you know, you weren't necessarily getting like a lot of emails or a lot of phone calls um, and, and on the weekends. And so it was a kind of, it was very, very uh, kind of full on, like volumes of emails, um, numbers of meetings during the day. And then like kind of, you, you know, but that, that did taper off. So it wasn't like a full kind of 24 hours a day, you know, that again, I think it like depends on what job you're in. And like, there are some, some jobs in the White House that are very much not like that. But, um, you know, this is kind of being in, a, in the environmental economy. There's not kind of a huge number of like um, major, like kind of climate economic emergencies that happen that need to be addressed within the next two hours, right? And so that, you know, different than, than some other issue areas. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering, Fran, now that you're a little ways out from your time at CEA, what are some of the most interesting things you learned, whether like professionally about yourself or about the government or about uh, your colleagues or anything that really stands out? 
Yeah, I, I think for me, one of the really exciting things um, and that I really, really enjoyed about CEA was interacting with this like diverse group of of economists coming from these other like specialty areas. Um, and I have come into economics very much from the environmental side. Um, and so I kind of, you know, that's my, you know, intellectual community. That's the kind of um, the work I know best. Um, and I have had, because I didn't, you know, I didn't come in from an economics PhD program, you know, much less uh, uh, exposure to, you know, these really major fields of economics, like macro and finance and health and labor. Um, and it, what's really, really exciting at CEA is that you have, you know, a specialist in each of those areas. And like, these are really wonderful, you know, incredibly smart people, but also, you know, they were great colleagues um, and, you know, willing to, to, you know, teach everyone a kind of about their area. And that was such a privilege to, um, to be able to learn from those colleagues about, you know, how do labor economists think about things? I learned a lot of macroeconomics. So one of the big projects we were working on was related, there's a big executive order on climate related financial risk that is driving a lot of work across agencies on trying to understand um, the risks of climate change and how that might you know, impact what they do um, and the their analysis of their, their things like budgeting or risk management. And that, um, as part of that, we, CEA leads uh, this macroeconomic forecasting as part of the president's budget. And so we have this kind of ongoing interagency working group that is really, you know, working on developing methods to bring kind of climate risks into that process in a way that's like, you know, really, I would say very new. Um, no one is entirely sure of like, the best way to do that. It's very, very different applications from a lot of climate economics that have been focused on cost benefit analysis and policy making around, say, the social cost of carbon. Macroeconomic forecasting is a totally different area. And so the kind of tools you need for it uh, are quite distinct. Um, and so it was, you know, fascinating kind of learning from the macroeconomists there about, you know, how do they do this? How do they think about it? What do their models look like? Um, and how could we kind of bring these things together? Um, so that that was that was, I think, for me, just like, a fantastic piece of the year. That sounds like such a great learning experience. Uh, and I, I'm sure they benefited from speaking with you as well, like having that group of colleagues around. It sounds like sort of like being at a university department where people are experts in all sorts of different fields, and but you're constantly like working together on projects versus doing your own thing in your own silos. Yeah, I, I think that it, it is kind of this, this mini economics department kind of sitting within the administration. And I think, you know, that is that is part of the design of it. Yeah, that sounds really, really fun, honestly. So one question, Fran, that um, that actually you suggested that, that I asked that, that I'm glad you did was uh, what economists or other policy researchers who haven't served in, in the type of role that you served in what are some of the ways that they can produce work that allows folks like you and others who are in the government to sort of pick up that work and use it in a way that is really relevant to the policy process? In other words, like what can researchers do to have more policy impact so that people like you and your colleagues uh, can readily use the work? Yeah, so I think this is one of my, you know, kind of takeaways kind of from the year, and that is, um, 
you know, about what does it mean to be kind of policy relevant or kind of impact policy. And, you know, like this is not by no means like, you know, a chief goal of kind of academic economics, um, and, you know, nor should it be. But, you know, I think for some academics is, is kind of something they're interested in. Um, and I would say it's also like coming from the policy side, like it's really valuable to have good objective information to be able to draw on. Because like I said, when you are kind of tasked with writing a memo in the next, you know, week that uh, on a on a new issue area, you kind of need to just, you know, you're not going to be doing your original research. Like you really need to be relying on kind of what is out there. Um, and so having that both both ready and accessible for like those moments moments it's you know uh, I, I I did realize kind of how valuable that is um, and so I think I have you know I some of my recommendations so one is um kind of listening to what policymakers are saying they need and actually there's been a number of kind of reports coming out of the administration that are really trying to speak to the academic community about you know this is where we see needs right now so one example is there is a ongoing interagency process on the frontiers of benefit cost analysis um, and they are putting out um, i think what are intended to be annual reports and um, the uh, the first one just came out. And that is really kind of saying, that, you know, this is where we see important gaps in our ability to do benefit cost analysis. And it would be really great, you know, it, kind of for academics to come and like fill some of that in. There has also been a um, recent similar memo from the um, what's called the Troika, which is the group that does the macroeconomic forecasting. So CEA, OMB and Treasury um, describing need for this kind of climate macroeconomic modeling. And so I think kind of like paying attention to that uh, is, is certainly one. I think then, you know, kind of anticipating what you know what is coming down the pipe and working on it um you, you know like one once an issue is policy ready there is no time to do original research and so it really needs to be kind of ready to go um and so and then i think um connecting to some of these bridging organizations so um you know it is it is a kind of a full-time job just like tracking these policy issues and having these knowing who is working on what um when and there are, are organizations that do that and i would say like resources for the future is a great one um and there's others like like brookings or like the institute for policy integrity um that are really kind of you know tracking the policy processes but are interested in bringing in like you know good um good uh, analysis into that and so i think those provide opportunities for academics to connect and i would say my my final recommendation would be to really think you know it does matter if trying to inform policy processes it really does matter that your analysis is, is kind of sufficiently detailed to represent the nuances of like both the real world and the policies that are being undertaken um, and I think there is like a lot of um, academic economics is kind of wants to do very like simple models. Um, and I think those are really important for understanding, um, for kind of interrogating like the dynamics of the system or kind of um, really like our fundamental understanding. But when we start getting into policy advice, you know, we start moving a little more into, well, what about what's going to happen in the real world, you know, so it's, you know, magnitudes matter, um, details matter, and, you know, the kind of abstraction of like, you know, we're gonna, 
an example is we're going to represent every policy as though it's a carbon price, which is pretty typical, I would say, in a lot of modeling. It's like, you know, that doesn't resonate with policymakers that say, but we don't have a carbon price. Um, and so like being able to have sufficient detail to make the case that, you know, this work does speak to the real world um, is kind of an important, like, you know, entry, you know, is important for um, the credibility, I would say, of that analysis for policymakers. That all makes sense. It's so interesting. One other kind of question along those lines is, um, how much did relationships matter in terms of your access to information when you were in the job? Like, did you reach out to a lot of people you knew personally to try to get information about a given subject that you needed to bone up on? Did people reach out to you? Did you sort of, like, were you looking for certain names when you were trying to find information on certain topics or was it, um, I don't know, somehow less personalized than that? I mean, I would, I would say it's a mix, you know, like, um, the one great thing, you know, about CA is, you know, if, if you're trying to calling someone up for information, you know, you, there's an expert on a topic and you kind of really just want to get like, you know, please, can you give me like a 10 minute distillation um, of, you know, how I should be understanding this, like people are very willing to help and very willing to pick up the phone. And so, you know, we, we definitely kind of use that. Um, I would say, you know, some issues I worked on, you know, like there's a lot of lobbying, <laughs> like, like there's a lot of um, interested parties like contributing to the information environment. Um, and in that setting, kind of having institutes and groups that you know are, you know, aiming towards an objective analysis um, and that you know they, they have like good modeling work um, that, you know, if they are producing something on this, like, you know, I kind of, you know, maybe I'm going to give that a lot more weight than something that is coming from, uh, say, you know, industry or kind of other groups that are, um, have particular interest in the outcome. And so that is hugely important work. And it is something that because it has to be so timely and because it is highly applied in its application, it's not going to be fully produced by academia. And so that's where I think these like, um, you know, these kind of bridging organizations are really, really important. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, well, we'll put that in the RFF annual report as um, as credit to us. <laughs> well, Fran, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really interesting. And I, uh, you know, I've asked you somewhat personal questions. So I just really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experience and, and being open about all of it. Uh, I'd love to close us out now by asking the same question we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack, something that is related to the environment or not, we're not particularly picky. Um, but what would you recommend to our listeners? Yeah, so I actually, I'm sitting at my desk and I do actually have a literal reading stack uh, right next to me. I've been, uh, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of chance to, to read uh, at CEA. And so uh, I, I have been kind of devouring uh, books since I got out. Um, and so if I can, I'll recommend three uh, that I've been looking at recently. Uh, so one is a book, Losing Earth by Nathaniel Rich, which I would recommend for people working on climate. It's a kind of really interesting history of the very early um, stages of recognizing climate as a policy problem in the United States. And so this is like kind of, you know, in the 60s and 70s and like, you know, exactly how that was understood, how that was discussed 
discussed the role of scientists, the role of economists, um, and the kind of various reports that came out over that period, um, I think it's just really fascinating history and like context for, you know, our current climate policy movement. Secondly, um, I'm reading this, uh, a book called If Women Counted by Marilyn Waring. Um, and this is really fascinating. She was a, a politician. She was an elected official in New Zealand. Uh, and as part of that kind of, you know, trying to understand the role of GDP statistics in our like national discourse and national policymaking. And the book is kind of older now, it's from the 80s, but it's really a deep-throated critique of uh, GDP. And I think a lot of environmental economists are familiar with the critique of it kind of not including, you know, the externalities or the environmental externalities associated production. And she is really talking about a different aspect, which is the way in which GDP statistics kind of remove uh, household labor and, you know, which is particularly performed by women and that that kind of gets classified under this GDP accounting as a form of leisure because, you know, it's not it's not labor. So it's something else it, and it doesn't get counted. And she's um, I don't agree with everything in the book, um, but I do think for people interested in these, these critiques of our economic statistics, it's it's, it's very eye opening uh, and interesting. And then finally, I'm reading this book, The Economist View of the World. So I was just at the ASSA meeting and one of the great and dangerous things about ASSA is there's all these publishers there that are then selling their display copies at deep discount. And so I, I kind of picked up this book there. Um, and it's a very interesting, um, very accessible, uh, like writing about why economists kind of see policy the way they do. And I teach uh, intro kind of environmental economics to master's students. Um, and I, you know, as part of that, what I'm really trying to do is I'm kind of give them the intuition for why economists think the way they do about policy. And this book is just, I think, really interesting for that. Um, it's written by, I, you know, I think he's more of a political scientist, so he's coming from outside the discipline. But I think making a very kind of fair case for like, you know, why economists see policy problems the way they do and what are, you know, what are both the strengths and the weaknesses of that. So it's something I'm considering introducing into my syllabus for next year. Fantastic. All right. Well, I will definitely check that out. And um, we will have links in the show notes to each of those recommendations. One more time, uh, Fran Moore from UC Davis, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.